Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We're the official podcast of Tennis Canada, members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And Mike, we're still without live tennis action, but there are plenty of talking points behind the scene and amongst players during this hiatus. Obviously, uh, we've had discussions of player funding, which has been agreed upon by some other players, not so much. And the Rogers Cup in Toronto, of course, is still very much in doubt as uh, we will speak to tournament director Carl Hale. We will also touch on the idea of a merger between uh, tennis's governing bodies. And on top of that, we've got an interview this week with Canadian tennis player Peter Polanski, who joined us from his isolation in Tampa, Florida. And for the first time in the history of our podcast, we will discuss a video game tennis tournament no word of a lie. I can't even believe uh, we're, we're saying that, but uh, <laughs> we will look at the uh, new and improved online version of the Madrid Open. Yeah, and I can't believe I, I took time out of my day to, to watch <laughs> professional athletes play a video game, but but that did happen, and I was not uh, not the only one. But uh, before we get to that, I, I guess I think the, the biggest, biggest topic over the past week has been a discussion of a merger, and it really started with the one one tweet from Roger Federer, who reignited this conversation, which has come up for many years. The idea, can all of the tennis governing bodies come together and exist as one single governing body? And and right now, you know, beyond the ATP and WTA, we also have the ITF. And then we know the four Grand Slam tennis tournaments uh, really work alone. Uh, so this would really be a major undertaking and major change, but it felt uh, when Roger Federer tweeted that a lot of players were for it. Yeah, in, in theory, this sounds fantastic, and I think a lot of people latched onto it because, uh, yeah, how can you argue against having unity in the sport? And I think it'd be really cool to have a professional sport uh, that is equal partners between the male and the female sides um, the flip side of that, of course, is it's very easy to, to tweet about it for Roger Federer or for anyone else to just throw it out there on social media without really having had the opportunity yet for all interested stakeholders to get together and discuss the pros, the cons, uh, and, and just exactly how it would work out and would it be viable on so many different levels. It sounds wonderful. I like it in theory. And I'm totally for uh, equality in sport between the ATP and WTA tours. But would they function together in a way that's going to be financially viable, in a way that's going to truly be equitable between them, uh, TV rights? Or is it going to be something where, um, just to look down one sort of avenue, would it be like some combined tournaments where the the men continue to have primetime TV slots, Uh, access to center court and the women are getting treated like a a second class tour which is not what we want to see so i'm very much for it if it could work in a 50 50 type scenario Mm -hmm. i don't want to see this happen if the women are going to take a back seat and uh, while i do laud uh, roger federer and others for for bringing it up i just kind of also questioned the way it was brought up in sort of like a uh, off the cuff here's a tweet i'm going to throw out there and and i think that did ruffle some feathers too as it seems yeah, well, and, and we know the power of the word of a Roger Federer uh, just with one tweet, uh, how much conversation you, you can generate uh, on this type of thing. And and look, the ATP and WTA and, and 
not not just those two tours, but men's and women's tennis players have for years and years, for decades and decades, in a way, been playing alongside one another, not just the four Grand Slam events where you'll have a women's match happen on center court. And when that match is finished, it, it might be a men's match waiting to come on as well. And uh, of course, we have mixed doubles. So in, in many aspects and, and several events, they are sharing the tour. So in that sense, it does feel sensible. And, and I'm thinking in terms of the dysfunction dysfunctionality that we sometimes see with the current governing bodies. Take, for example, uh, Roland Garros and the French Tennis Federation uh, just arbitrarily deciding when they're going to move their tournament without talking to inter- any other governing bodies. You think these sort of problems could maybe sort themselves out a little bit better if everybody was working together on them rather than really really seven separate entities, which is which is crazy for one sport. Yeah, there's definitely a way to streamline things in tennis and make it more visually appealing and understandable to uh, more of the casual sort of tennis fans. On the men's side, you've got Masters 1000s. On the women's, you've got Premier 5s, I mean, and Premier Mandatory. Let's just get the lingo all sort mm-hmm. of together, which would which would be kind of cool. Uh, I mean, there's so much we could talk about here from, like, well, does on-court coaching continue or does that, you know, get adopted by both sides? With that, There's so much to talk about. And, and I kind of um, regret the way that it was brought up. Um, and clearly some people were not thrilled with how it came across. Um, Federer, and I don't fault him for, for doing it. I don't think he has an ulterior motive or was trying to steal anyone's thunder. We all know the idea, uh, you know, is not a new one. And Billie Jean King, of course, was, was a pioneer for equality and, and fighting for the women's side as, as much as having it join the men's side in a place of prominence. Um, but we did see some people speak up who were not necessarily thrilled by the way it came out. Like, for example, for those of you who might have seen Serena Williams' tweet that went up and then quickly was taken down, mm-hmm. um, sort of alluding to the fact that, hey, didn't we all agree that we weren't going to spill the beans on this one uh, quite yet? And there was, there was more dialogue to happen. Uh, Canada's Vashik Pospisil, who we've talked to several times on the podcast, also tweeted saying, hey, that's a great idea, but, uh, you know, the ATP's been talking about this and working on things behind the scenes since January on this one. So it's just, um, I just wonder why it it had to come up in this way. And uh, then it opens it up to all this discussion that really should be happening probably behind closed doors so that when the idea does come out to the public and the media, there's a little bit more cohesion behind it and a little bit more thought that's already gone into it as opposed to, hey, what do you think, uh, you know, discuss, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I suppose the discussion that could take place in terms of behind closed doors, perhaps it's uh, a group of uh, members of player, Players Council and people in the different governing bodies uh, maybe getting together for a huge Zoom call. I, is that the answer? <laughs> uh, sort out these, uh, these issues. Um, but I suppose when you're looking at the timing of this, and if it is such a big undertaking, to, to unite the tours and get one governing body, maybe timing-wise this is perfect with everything completely on pause, no timeline for any kind of return, that even if Roger Federer, maybe it was not the best decision to throw at this idea, seemingly they could have months to work on it. And maybe with some months to work on it, you get Nick Kyrgios on board because he was definitely yes. from the get-go, uh, to me at least what I saw, the, the strongest opponent to the idea and, and again, you know, you need perspective from both sides. You are not going to get 100%. You're not going to get even 80% of people who are necessarily on board with the idea. There's going to be, I don't want to use the term dissenters, but you're going to have people who are opposed to the idea. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a variety of reasons for that. Some of them valid, some of them not. But they need to be heard. 
And uh, even I'm not 100% convinced this is the right thing to do until I've seen all the information sort of laid out and, and debated. And hopefully, if they do decide to merge the tours, it's done uh, not in a snap decision. And like you just said, we've got time now to debate it, which is great. Um, but you're going to definitely have some hurdles to go over to make sure that if it happens, it happens properly. And what comes out of it is a stronger sport, a unified sport, and it's good for tennis on both the male and the female side of things. Yeah, and uh, you made a nice point in terms of making things a little more simple and a little more accessible for for tennis fans. And even the casual fan in Canada, sometimes I feel like it's they're trying to get invested in the sport. And I can't tell you the number of times uh, someone who is just getting into tennis asking me questions about how these tournaments work, being quite confused about ranking points and what is what does a premier five mean? What is what does an ATP 500 mean? Like we need something that I think everybody can can truly understand in, in that sense. And, and also, we, we have a lot of fans out there who are maybe they're pure die hard like women's tennis fans. or They're only like, oh, I, I only watch the men, so uh, why would I spend money to get WTA TV? Whereas, I, as, as you know, uh, like both, both sports are, I mean, it's the same sport, but both sides are, are absolutely great and entertaining. And I, I think uh, for, for a lot of tennis fans, they, they can get great enjoyment from watching both ATP and WTA matches. So uh, you, you don't want to be missing out on a, a set of a fan base because they really haven't had a great chance to watch, say, the WTA, for example. Yeah, this is definitely going to have uh, some more dialogue down the road on future episodes for us to see what comes next. But uh, there's no shortage overall of uh, information to talk about of uh, interesting moments to to speak about on the podcast in this now, uh, I think week six or week seven, since the tour has kind of stopped playing, mm-hmm. I thought we were going to be much hard, more hard pressed to, to debate things, but the players and the tours are giving us so much, um, you know, fuel to put on the fire that uh, I love it. I don't think we're ever going to run out of ideas. And, and that's not even the only big one to discuss this week. There's other ones too to, to get to, obviously. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we touched on the player funding proposal last week, which was sort of spearheaded by Novak Djokovic and the Players' Council, uh, getting significant player funding to lower-ranked players, which was uh, 250 to 700. Now, obviously, that, that could change, and not all the details there ha- have been worked out. But uh, a bit surprising, I think this raised a lot of eye- eyebrows that uh, Dominic Team, who is currently the world number three, and I would say, like, one of the most well-liked players on tour, uh, very much objecting to the idea, uh, suggesting, like, why would I give money to these lower-ranked players? You know, I, I had to work so hard to get to this point and uh, said he would rather give his money to more worthy causes and actually said he finds some of the lower-ranked players at times are unprofessional. I, I was very surprised to hear Dominic Team of all people, say that. Yeah, I mean, I can talk about some higher-ranked players who are sometimes unprofessional, so I think that goes both ways. That's true. And that goes in, in any profession, too, not just professional tennis. But a couple things that, that come to mind with this one, and first of all is, um, I always in my head I say, okay, let's be the voice of reason here. Let's try and look at both sides. Mm-hmm. So uh, was he misquoted? Was it presented with a certain angle? Uh, this wasn't in English, so I, I didn't hear it you know, verbatim the way it came out. But I did see some people, um, you know, some Austrians say, well, it wasn't quite, or maybe it was misconstrued, or wasn't exactly the way he intended it, depending on how you look at a word and translate it. You can't just pop something into Google Translate and expect that you're going to get the message. So 
take it with a grain of salt. And was it exactly what he meant? I doubt that that was exactly what he intended to say. Were parts of it potentially true? Um, sure. And, and I would even agree with some of those things, which is, you know, not everybody is going to uh, go along with this idea that Novak and Roger and Nadal are, are trying to put out there. It's a noble idea. Uh, but our society isn't necessarily built upon making, you know, the most noble, altruistic, uh, charitable decisions. I mean, during normal times, how many people are out there sharing their wealth and sharing their money, let alone uh, professional athletes? So uh, while it's a nice idea, it doesn't mean everyone's going to go for it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean everyone is necessarily able to go for it. I mean, just because you're ranked, I don't know, 80th in the world, who knows how you're spending that money? Who knows if you've got enough set aside to... so? You're not going to get everybody on board. Did Novak and Roger and Rafa consult with everybody? Or was this, again, sort of a, a big three or a, a small select group that were coming up with it? And so I think it needs to go through more of a, a discussion phase before it just gets blurted out there. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person because you don't agree with it or don't want to share your um, you know, supposed piece of the pie as it's been proposed under this system. So... Um, now, the way that it comes across, and, and I don't think it's fair to say, obviously, anyone outside the top 250 are unprofessional. There's a whole lot of reasons why you're ranked outside the top 250. Injuries, financial obstacles, uh, talent that hasn't fully developed. Um, so I think team has to clarify what he meant or how it was portrayed. Um, but at, at the root of it, uh, I think it, it raises a point that you're not going to get everybody on board with that. And that's okay on some level. Yeah, and uh, look, we're going to touch on this uh, in my interview with Peter Polanski, and, and he's going to share his thoughts on the matter. But uh, just to get that other side of the perspective, uh, Jamaican and German professional tennis player Dustin Brown, uh, you know, famous for beating Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon, being such a great, exciting grass court player, he weighed in on this issue a few days ago. He said, I started in 2004. I lived in a camper surviving from week to week with the money I made. Uh, losing first round in a 10K tournament was $117.50 uh, with tax. Because of this, I was also stringing rackets for other players for uh, five pounds a pop. So I guess, you know, around $11, $12. If this would have happened then, it would have cost me my career. So you get that interesting mm -hmm. perspective mm -hmm. of just how difficult uh, it is to make it uh, when you are in that lower ranked uh, stratosphere on the tour, uh, really going week to week. So I was glad that Dustin Brown shared that perspective, just the other side of the equation there. And, uh, I, you know, I will I will mention it's not that Dominic team maybe isn't a charitable charitable person because uh, as it was said in his quote, he wanted to give his money to what he felt were more worthy causes. Uh, but, yeah, I think it, I think it brings up uh you know, a, a wide-ranging discussion. I, I don't think one side mm -hmm. is more correct than the other. And and it is true that some players will not likely be able to come out of this unscathed and necessarily be able to go back to traveling and touring and playing those small ITF events after this is all said and done. For some, especially depending on their, their age and, and how tight things are financially, they're going to have to look towards going into other career streams sooner than they would have liked, unfortunately. Uh, you got the chance to speak with Peter Polanski, uh, someone who's uh, very well suited to speak to this exact issue because at times he's been in and out of the top 250, mm -hmm. and he had some interesting takes. So uh, 
why don't you uh, cue this up and then we'll uh, debrief afterwards on some of his big points. Yeah, certainly. Uh, thank you to uh, Peter Polanski who, who shared his time with me in, in this interview. And we, we covered all of those issues, including his career, which kind of hit a peak in 2018, where uh, not only did he get close to the top 100, but he also uh, qualified for all four Grand Slam tournaments as a lucky loser each time. So uh, people remember him for that, but uh, still, still trying to make it on tour and, uh, uh, currently ranked 192nd, and he had a lot of views on uh, that subject, uh, among others. So without further ado, here's my interview with Canadian tennis player Peter Polanski. Now joined by our next guest, and he's a Canadian tennis player, uh, Peter Polanski, joining us this week on the podcast. And uh, Peter, thanks so much uh, for joining us on Matchpoint Canada. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess I just wanted to start in the like quarantine lockdown days. Where are you in the world right now? And uh, are you able to maintain and keep up any, any tennis training whatsoever? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm actually in Tampa, Florida. That's where I, I reside. I'm based out of here. And uh, I train out of the IMG Academy. Um, but yeah, you know, with everything that's going on, I actually decided to just take a little break from the on-court training and uh i don't even i'm not even sure if that's possible at the moment because we're kind of on you know quarantine as you know so uh all i've been doing really is just maintaining fitness since uh i feel like i feel like there's going to be still several more months before um you know at the earliest if i could get back onto the tournament schedule yeah, that's uh, that's understandable, and uh, yeah, obviously, right now, I think uh, everybody is is in the same type of boat. Uh, I guess like your your day day to day, if you can't be on court hitting tennis balls, w- what does that look like now? Yeah, I mean, uh, I actually, as a hobby, I'm really into like computer programming. So, um, sorry, one second. No problem. Wow. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm really into computer programming. So uh, I've just decided to use this time I'm trying to be productive. I'm working on a couple uh, a couple new apps. Um, I've made a couple. I made a few games in my past that I've released on the iOS app store. So right now I'm working on just a couple side projects, um, new languages, and uh, that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm trying to stay productive. Uh, while I'm also still maintaining some fitness. That's that's great. I, I actually had that in my questions because I've I've heard that uh, you are into computer programming and and gaming design. And how how long has that been a a passion for for you? And when did you actually get started in it? Uh, I actually learned to program when I was about sixteen, seventeen years old. Um, I used to just make some almost like a for some of these online video games I would make some like automated processes and after I did that for a couple of years and then when I was about 18 19 20 I just I didn't really know where to go with my programming uh, so I took a break for uh, many years probably four or five years and then I decided to get back into programming when I was uh, around 25 years old and I just thought okay maybe I'll get back into it I didn't really know what to do with it so I thought okay I'd, I'd make a game um, so I started working on like iOS development and I ended up releasing a few games which were a great uh, almost like 
stepping stones to just continue learning. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy doing it. I can just sit down and knock out like six hours straight of just coding, which, you know, some of my friends think I'm, I'm crazy for being <laughs> able to do that. But uh, I find it really enjoyable. And uh, right now I'm taking the time to learn new languages and build a couple web apps, which are like websites and um, a couple other applications. I'm, I'm leaning a little bit more now towards the application side uh, instead of gaming just to get uh, a different perspective on the programming world. This, uh, this sounds incredibly unique uh, among the tennis world, at least uh, from, from what I know. I don't, I don't imagine, are, are there any other players on, on the ATP you've ever come across who, who do coding? Uh, no, actually, I haven't <laughs> really spoken to anyone about it. So I'm kind of like just a lone wolf in that sense. Okay. But I, I don't really have many people to talk about that kind of thing with. Oh, that that's cool to have these uh, these two separate passions. Obviously, your your tennis career and and then programming as as well. Uh, I guess just going into to your upbringing and and getting into the sport of tennis itself. And I, I know you're a native of North York, Ontario, and uh, a lot of us are mm-hmm. are in this neighborhood. When did you first start playing? And and what was I guess the the process from transitioning to a, a young player into deciding to eventually go pro? Yeah, uh, so I. I my tennis upbringing was probably just a little bit different than how it is today. I started playing when I was six and I just played at my local academy. I had one coach there that I worked with from basically 10 years old until uh, I was around 22 years old. And, you know, nowadays you see a lot of national training centers and state of the art fitness centers and fitness coaches and, you know, players having four coaches at a young age um, but when I grew up, it was a little bit different. I just had my, just my, the place where I trained, um, I trained in a normal academy. I trained with, uh, just other juniors that were, you know, local Ontario players. And, um, I think I was really passionate at a young age already because I would, I would do the same training, but I would just practice a lot more, you know, I'd finish school at one or 2 PM and just train and from like two to seven every day, uh, obviously with some breaks, but, uh, I, I was really passionate about it at a young age, and it was something that I wanted, so I think I excelled. Um, and, you know, obviously I was I did well in the juniors. I was number one under 12, under 14, under 16, under 18. And, uh, you know, uh, I think having good junior results give you, gives you confidence to, to do well internationally. And, uh, you know, I was always on the, uh, on the junior tours for Tennis Canada and, with myself and another Canadian player, Philip Bester, who were who were kind of the top two or three. I'm sure there were a couple others in there that, that were just as good. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, the transition into pro was um, it was also a lot different. Maybe when I was going through that process about 12 years ago, because um, going to college back then wasn't really looked at something that was going to be. Um, beneficial for your tennis career on the tour because back then guys were peaking you know at age 25 26 so if someone went to college until they were 22 they were already um, halfway through their tennis career as a pro when they got out and the chance of them making it was pretty slim whereas nowadays I feel like guys are peaking even later you know they have until 28 30s even early 30s where they're really starting to peak Um, so I actually recommend a lot of guys, unless they're probably a top five junior, I would recommend going to college for 
at least one or two years, get that experience as a player in college. And um, I think just on the social side, learn to, to just live a little bit and, and grow um, as a kid. Yeah, and I, I think we're seeing it uh, become a, a much more common route over probably the fa- past past five years or so. Um, it, it's interesting because you and I were, were the same age, both uh, 31 years old. And uh, for me, I'm, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination a veteran in, in my career field, but uh, some might call you a, a veteran of the tennis tour. It, you know, you, you have been uh, playing on the professional circuit for, for a number of years now. How do you think maybe more experience on the ATP has is, is sort of helped you navigate things and, and improve your tennis? Yeah, I mean, definitely as you get older, you, you gain experience and uh, you've played a lot more matches. So maybe smaller things don't really get to you, like such as playing in your first Grand Slam, whether it's main draw or qualifying, uh, that type of thing. I feel like uh, when I was younger, between the ages of 20 to 25, I feel like the tennis world was a little bit um, maybe easier uh, in the sense that not everyone was performing their best at the Grand Slam. I'm talking, you know, just some of the qualifyings that I've played. And, mm-hmm. You know, nowadays you have guys that are playing qualifying and everybody's got a coach and a lot of guys have even a fitness guy with them. So, uh, and, you know, a lot of the guys that are playing the qualifying right now, they've been on tour for just as long as I have. So everyone, it's pretty competitive in the sense that everyone's, gone through this many times everyone's ready to go and uh there's not really too many too many easy matches to go by whether it's in the grand slams or even the challenger if you say it's, uh, it's gotten pretty tough so i feel like tennis as a whole the depth has just um been increasing uh, more and more each year yeah, well, this is something we've actually we've we've chatted about on on the podcast. And uh, for example, with the Australian Open, uh, our fellow Canadian Denis Shapovalov losing his first round match, I think for a lot of people were were very surprised. How did he lose his first round match in Australia? And he yeah. was playing a player like Martin Fuksovic. And uh, for someone who watches a lot of tennis, I was I was telling people everybody and it feels like everybody inside the top 100 is is a great player and then and you look sort of 100 to 200 and you see familiar names and really steady players everywhere i, I guess mm-hmm. you can kind of speak to the evolution of the the tour in that sense like it, it it does feel like uh this is the strongest the atp has ever been uh yeah i would have to agree with that even a guy like Martin who is a really really good player um but not many people know about him. So when right. you see someone like Dennis losing to him, and I, and I did watch some of that match, and it was extremely high quality. And Dennis came up just a little bit short, but, uh, you know, that's going to happen. And uh, obviously Dennis is still young. He's got a lot of time. Um, so that's not really much of a setback for him. Cause he'll, he'll bounce back and he's going to do great things. But it's true that everyone inside the top 200 is, is pretty tough, whether it's a guy ranked, 170 playing a guy ranked 80. I mean, it's going to be a close match, and no one really, no one really sees that. I think the the media and uh, just journalism in general uh, in the tennis um, with tennis is just that anyone outside of top hunter they they tend to call kind of like a journeyman and a nobody. So mm-hmm. um, to the average viewer, when they do see someone ranked 170, they're like, who is this guy? But you know, it's 
actually he's a good player. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, for for you personally, uh, felt like 2018 was was kind of your your top year on tour, and you, you got to your career high, which is was close to that top 100, uh, 110. Yeah. Um, for you, where where do you think you're you're at with your game right now, personally, and uh, what do you think is working? What do you think maybe needs to improve when we're when we return to tennis? That is. Yeah, uh, obviously, yeah, I had my career high back in 2018. 2019 was a little bit of a tough year for me, Um, you know, just having been so close to to breaking that top 100 and being where I want to be. You know, it's tough. It's tough when you're so close to your goals and you don't reach them, and uh, that's kind of been not the same, but that's happened a lot over my career. Probably over the last 10 years, I've I've been hovering around 110 to maybe 130, 140, sorry about that my lowest ranking in several years, but, uh, you know, it's tough. I, I, I do feel really good about my game. I feel like I've, I've played some good tennis and I've lost some really close matches. So, um, yeah, I just, I think you got to stick with it and not get discouraged too much when things don't go your way. Cause you know, that's going to happen. Uh, regardless who you are, things aren't going to go your way every time. And, uh, I'm looking forward to, that's a little bit why I took some of this time off is knowing that I have, you know, potentially up to another seven months off from the game or from competition. Uh, I thought, okay, you know, maybe I'll just extend this this break from tennis for another month or two. And uh, you know, I'm already hungry to get back out there, but uh, I, I feel like stepping away just for a month or two is also a good mental break from that side. Right. Yeah, certainly. Uh, that, that definitely makes sense. And, uh, I'm sure maybe in that sense, you can, you can come back, uh, not only physically, physically fresh, but, but mentally fresh from the grind that, that is the tour. Um, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on a few of the discussions we've seen just, uh, coming across Twitter over the past week or two Mm -hmm. from, from top players, uh, like a late latest initiative implemented by Novak Djokovic and the players council, uh, funding for players ranked 200 to 750 and, and seeing certain payouts, uh, of money for, for players who are lower ranked. I'm sure you can speak to the, the grind, uh, financially, uh, of making it as a tennis professional when, you know, you, you're not inside the top 25 top 50 do you think this is a, a necessary initiative and and how challenging is it if you're a player say uh outside the 200 trying just trying to make a living breaking even playing the sport that you love yeah for sure i mean there's a few aspects i can talk about that so um i know they were initially thinking of supporting guys ranked 200 to 700 which uh in my opinion that doesn't make that much sense because, um, you know, guys that are ranked 400 and lower, I would even be surprised if they're making 10, 15 grand the whole year while they're playing the sport. So to give them 10 grand, which was the rumor number, uh, to give them 10 grand while they're not playing is like basically providing their entire prize money while they're not even playing. So uh, I feel like personally, um, I think they should be supporting guys maybe ranked 100 to 300. Uh, I think that's a pretty fair, uh, a pretty fair number in terms of ranking of guys who should be supported. The top 100 guys, obviously, you know, they've done a lot for the sport, uh, but do they really need a little bit of extra money while while the tour isn't going on? I don't think so. I'm sure there are a few new guys in the top 100 that could definitely benefit, but I think. 
the most pain is going to be between those guys ranked 100 to 300. Um, and outside of 300, obviously it sucks that they don't get supported, but I, I feel like they would also need to kind of earn their, their right to, to be um, supported back by the sport. Um, and the other thing that I don't really agree with is that the ATP was asking, you know, top 100 players to make a donation, which I think is uh, not really a great look for the ATP tour to be asking players um, to provide funding to lower ranked, like the higher ranked players to provide funding to lower ranked players. I don't think that's a good look for the tour because, you know, something like the NBA would never be asking LeBron James mm-hmm. to be making a donation to the guys who are, um, you know, playing on the on the third lines that don't really matter. Um, I'm not saying that the other tennis players don't matter, but you never they would never be asking LeBron James to be paying the other players. Um, so I think in general, the idea is the idea like kind of makes sense. Okay, let's ask for some of the top players to help out some of the lower ranked players. But I think just that whole idea doesn't doesn't look good for the tour. Um, and uh, not only that, I think uh, I think that the tour should have just stepped up on their own. Um, you know, I think they've relied on the players to, to be making the tournaments, the Grand Slams, the Master events. The, the players themselves have earned the tournaments a lot of money. And the fact that we don't see the tournaments giving back to the players have, that have given them that opportunity is uh, a little bit disappointing. Mm-hmm. Just that we don't, you know, they've made so much money off of us, but then when times get tough, uh, they're, you know, they're nowhere to be found to give back to the players, which is a little bit disappointing. But, uh, and, you know, I'm not talking about players that are ranked 100 to 300 because they, you know, you know obviously they're not like the Roger Federer and the Rafael Nadal's, but they, as a whole in the sport, they do um, they do a lot for, for the sport. And a lot of it does come from, you know, Federer and Nadal, Djokovic. They do bring up almost 90% of, you know, just the fan base to the game. So, a lot is on their shoulders, but at the same time, I feel like uh, without the lower-ranked players, there wouldn't be a tour. So uh, you do need those lower-ranked guys to to just create some kind of a competitive event and, and a pathway for the younger generations to, to get through to the top. Yeah, that's a no. That's that's a great point that you bring up. And as of now, it, it seems uh, a problem with accountability because for a sport like tennis, you have. Uh, seven different governing bodies when we're talking about ATP, WTA, ITF, and then the four separate Grand Slam tournaments. And uh, I, I guess it's a challenge yeah. for everybody to sort of be working and being on the same page. And uh, we, we saw last week Roger Federer tweet the idea of a, a possible uh, merger of having one uh, one tennis governing body. Uh, is that something you would be uh, for or against? Um. Or would you need more information? <laughs> yeah, I think there there needs to be more information about it. Obviously, there's some incentive to combine the tours. Um, from what I've heard, and obviously, I don't really uh, know a whole lot about the, the inside of the women's tour. But, um, you know, I think the women's tour sometimes does rely on the men's tour for combined events, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I, I do know that the, the men draw... So I think if they're looking to come combine and join forces, I don't think they're doing it um, for no reason. I'm sure there's some kind of incentive that um, is going to be drawn up for 
either party. I'm not sure exactly the intrinsics of it, but uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing. I don't think anyone saw that coming. Um, A lot of the chatter around the men's tour, obviously, was that they don't like combined events because, uh, you know, a lot of the men feel that it takes away um, from their prize money and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, if it, if it benefits the sport, then, then I'm all for it. So I'm not really on one side of that, but, um, you know, what I, I'm on the side of whatever is better for the sport. Let's, let's go after that. If it's combining the tours, let's combine the tours. If it's changing the, the structure of tournaments, then let's change the structure of tournaments. So I'm looking at as if that's something they believe will, will help the tours and let's do it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly makes sense uh i should ask because you mentioned uh the the idea of uh payouts from players and and players between that 100 to 300 range who who probably need the most help uh for you with this time off you you can't be traveling and playing um is it a major challenge right now financially or, or are you okay i mean it's not the ideal situation but uh i mean i'll be okay that's just um it's tough, obviously, for anyone, not just a tennis player, anyone who, um, you know, it's almost like being laid off. Uh, you don't really have an income, and it's possible that there won't be an income for the whole rest of the year. So um, it's obviously a tricky situation. I think some guys might be might be teaching a little bit on the side. And, I mean, I wouldn't mind teaching some lessons. So maybe uh, when I get back on court, I can mix in my training a little bit with uh, teaching some lessons just to get some income and, and feel good about myself. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I should ask, uh, but before I let you go, uh, in, in terms of uh, coaching and a team that, that you're working with, uh, who are you cur- currently working with, uh, if anybody, on, on the on the uh, coaching side? On the coaching side, right now, nobody. I was working with Alex Bogomolov um, at the end since September last year until... Uh, the end of last year. So basically he was here with me in December and then he decided to um, take a position with uh, Jack Sock. So he's coaching Jack Sock now, but uh, at the moment uh, I'm not working with anyone. Okay. Okay. Um, that's, that's great. Uh, well, Peter, thanks so much uh, for joining us uh, this week on, on match point Canada and, and giving us uh, your perspective on uh, some, uh, I suppose, political issues uh, on the tour right now. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me again. There you have it, Peter Polanski uh, on our Matchpoint Canada podcast. And we touched on it earlier in the interview that uh, he is a coder. And I I knew this. I knew he was into computer programming, but I I didn't know that's what he was going to tell me he was spending much of his time uh, doing right now. But I suppose now is a better time than ever for someone who has a passion for computer programming and coding. uh, If the tennis tour is on hiatus, this is the perfect time for him to dive into that. It's good to diversify and have other options, you know, Ben, even outside of this podcast, of course, we do other things. And thank God, otherwise it'd be a tough go for us. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he's a coder. And I mean, no disrespect in this, but, uh, you know, when he's got those glasses on, kind of gives the vibe that he might be behind a keyboard, uh, you know, doing something (laughs) there. And uh, you should have asked him if he he could help us design like a a webpage or more of a a presence (laughs) online or something. Yeah, you're right. Or maybe next time you talk to him, you know, just uh, build that rapport. And maybe when his tennis career is done, we could, uh, you know, join forces there. But, uh, 
he is a veteran now, as as mentioned, at the age of, of 31, which you wouldn't use that term in most industries and careers. But in the tennis world and in terms of Canadian tennis players, he has been around longer than many. And um, he had some great points uh, and an interesting look at who he felt needs the most help uh, on the tour during a time like this. Yeah, well, it is a fair point to say when when you're talking about tennis players who are lower ranks than, say, 400, and then you're giving them, say, $10,000, $15,000, that's normally uh, more than maybe they would be banking in a calendar year just from their pursuit of a tennis career. So it, it could be you're helping out individuals who uh, maybe do have that side hustle that that's keeping that career alive and everybody else kind of took that path without, without the assistance and uh, the 100 to 300 range are, are really suffering because they've perhaps invested so much money in the physio trainer, the coach, uh, you know, the therapist, all of that. Uh, obviously you put that on pause, but I, I think once you get really inside the top 300, top 250, you're pretty confident. Like this is my life now. I'm a, I'm, pers- I'm, full-on pursuit of becoming a, a professional tennis player or, or a M1, whereas I think you have some players, maybe outside, outside 400, 500, they might not be sure this is what they're doing for, for their career. Yeah, where do you draw the line? Where do you start the line? Right. And for Polanski, he was saying between 100 and 300 are going to need more support. So, uh, again, things that maybe needed to be discussed a little further and there's no guarantee anything's coming from this, um, you know. And mm-hmm. as he mentioned, he felt it was kind of a bad look for the ATP that the players are taking it upon themselves to start this up as opposed to perhaps the the, the league or the tour in this case uh, being the ones to, um, you know, come to their players' uh, support or come up with an idea. Uh, you know, what industries out there would you look internally, you know, in your day job or my day job, it would be unheard of probably to be asked to support those who are, you know, maybe not as experienced or haven't been there as long or whatever the case may be. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be interesting to see what comes of it. Maybe nothing comes of it. Uh, That's also an option. And it's also going to be interesting to see if the ATP or the men's side does adopt some sort of um, revenue sharing. Do the women follow suit? Is this something that gets talked about on that side as well, where, um, it clearly could be just as useful for those players outside the top 100, 200, what have you. Definitely. And it, and it actually made me think of uh, kind of the different labor disputes that we've seen in professional sports, like an NHL lockout or baseball locking out, for example. And you have this divide between players and ownership. And I feel like maybe that's almost in a way what he was touching on divide between players who are being asked to, to give their, their harder money or, or these tours that are making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on the backs of players, which, which side are you on? And often when we had lockouts in professional sports, like an NHL lockout, for example, I mean, I'm normally on the side of the players, like, the, the league doesn't exist without the players. They, they are the ones that are really generating all the revenue, and that's the same case with, with tennis. It's all about the, the Nadals, Federer's, Djokovic's, and then, and then trickle-down effects, same with the women's side. And as Polanski said, you know, the tour does not happen without your lower-ranked players. You can't just have a tournament with the big three, okay? Yes. Although some people might enjoy that on some <laughs> level. Um, you know, you need everyone else to, to make it work. Mm-hmm. And um, again, who knows how long this is going to last. But the longer this lasts, the more we're going to see these discussions uh, being held and, and hopefully come to some sort of fruition or some sort of head or some sort of result. Uh, you just hope that tennis comes out of this 
Um, I mean, I don't know if any of these sports are going to come out of it stronger, but you hope that tennis comes out of it not too weakened by, uh, by what we're going through here. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We are on Instagram at Matchpoint Canada. We are members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We are hopeful uh, that the Rogers Cup will return uh, safe and sound in 2021. It feels very, very much in doubt for 2020. Coop Rogers in Montreal, of course, has already been postponed until next year. The Rogers Cup in Toronto, the official postponement or cancellation has not happened. And uh, Mike, you get the opportunity to interview a great tournament director and a big fan of all the players, uh, Carl Hale. Yeah, and Carl's got to be in a position right now, uh, as I'm speaking to you before I've, I've talked to him, but in a position where uh, I can only imagine how many conversations he's having on a daily basis to strategize and decide uh, how close we're getting now to the point where we have to pull the plug and postpone it as they did in Montreal for another year. Uh, Tennis Canada, obviously, over the last week, anyone who's been following them and following the chatter on Twitter uh, is going to have to lay off a significant amount of their part-time and full-time staff, and our hearts go out to them. In many mm-hmm. cases, people that we, while we're not Tennis Canada employees, people that we have worked alongside and worked with in conjunction with this podcast over the last year, and, and people in many cases who I feel you know we've developed a, a very strong working relationship with, uh, a friendship in some cases as well, and you want to see um, them be okay through all of this, and, and we already know that many of them are, are not going to be okay in the short term, and we wish them the best of luck um, getting out of this and, and finding other avenues to pursue short term and hopefully come back to Tennis Canada in the near future. But uh, everyone's feeling the effects, and the Rogers Cup in Toronto, if that does indeed uh, get postponed, as it did in Montreal, that is going to be another major financial blow to those at Tennis Canada, those people that work there, um, and, and they rely on that funding so much as a nonprofit organization to help throughout the year. So, um, again, our thoughts go out to everyone affected there. And uh, definitely having Carl on at a time like this uh, is, is someone who can uh, shed some light on this subject, maybe not as much as we'd love to hear and, and, and learn about at this point in time, but someone who's definitely very much as tournament director plugged into what is happening on a day-to-day basis at this time. Yeah, certainly in uh, such a difficult time. As you said, uh, the two tournaments, Montreal and Toronto Rogers Cup, they bring in over 90% of Tennis Canada's revenue uh, for a fiscal year. So you can understand how difficult it is. We we hope this is only a short-term blow uh, for 2020 and everything can come back stronger than ever in 2021. Uh, without further ado, here is uh, the interview with tournament director Carl Hale. I'm pleased to be joined now by Rogers Cup Tournament Director, Vice President of Professional Tennis Registry, and the founder of the Helping Hands Jamaica Foundation, uh, a voice that we're all very familiar with here in Canada. Carl Hale, thanks for joining us on Matchpoint Canada. Mike, thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. I'm going to cut right to the chase, Carl, and get to the question that's on everybody's minds here, all the big uh, Canadian tennis fans, and that is, where do things stand right now with the Rogers Cup in Toronto this summer? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and uh, things obviously are not looking great at this time. Uh, the decision really begins and ends with public health as a number one priority. 
you know, the safety of the players, the athletes, the fans, our partners, volunteers, ball kids, etc. Therefore, we're working with the tour, the ATP tour, the WTA tour, and the governments to make a decision here. But it's not looking great at this time, but we are, you know, continuing to make plans to see if this can happen. Is there any sort of deadline, firm deadline, that you guys have where by a certain date you have to know one way or the other just in order to have enough time to, to make this thing work? I think those deadlines are moving every single day. Um, but, you know, the absolute latest deadline would be June, the beginning of June. But I think we'll, you know, likely have a decision before that. What kind of other options in the interim are being explored? Um, I mean, is it either happening between August 9th and 16th or not happening at all? Could it be pushed back? Could the event be played even without fans? What kind of alternates are you looking at right now? We've looked at so many different options. Uh, I don't know if you remember, it's probably before your time, but there's an event held in the then Sky Dome, um, now the Rogers Center. Uh, we've looked at date changes all the different options, you know, but, you know, as you all know, the French Open moved back into September and we're, we're an outdoor event, so it really limits our, our uh, dates that are available to us. So right now it looks like it's going to be August 9th to 16th um, or not, depending on what happens over the next uh, short while. On the question of playing without fans, our financial model just doesn't support that you know we don't have the tv rights of the nba or nfl or leagues of that nature so we we really are reliant on our fan base so without that it doesn't look likely that we'd be holding one the, the situation in montreal was obviously pressed by the government decision there to cancel all big sporting events uh up to the end of august does that put any extra pressure on toronto to either follow suit to stay you know, on the same ground as them or the opposite? Does it put more pressure that you even more so really want to try and make it happen if you can just because of the financial loss for Tennis Canada and the entire program here in our country? You know, as you know, our, our tournament is a federation-owned tournament by Tennis Canada and it just makes us get better prepared. So we're talking to other events and the tours around the world about best practices going forward if this event can take place, if the Rogers Cup can happen. And if not, you know, we're looking at 2021, you know, getting prepared for that. You know, one of the, the potential options is to host the men's and women's event here in Toronto this year if it did go forward, because as we all know, uh, Montreal was postponed to 2021. Oh, okay. That's, uh, I'm not sure if I'd heard that one before. So as unlikely as that seems, it, it is one avenue that could be discussed or is being discussed to potentially have both WTA and ATPs here in Toronto. Correct, correct. Okay. Oh, that'd be something else. I mean, it, it's worked so well having a virtual combined over the last few years. Um, I couldn't uh, imagine what it would be like having them together. But uh, obviously that's something that if it could happen, we'd be better than, than nothing, as, uh, as unlikely as that seems. Um, yeah, if, if it did happen, um, just so everybody knows, we would go back to the schedule that the woman would be in Montreal next year and the men would be here in Toronto as well. So Got it. Um, and we continue the rotation going forward in, in that manner. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. Um, that leads me to a question, I guess, that's uh, right on that topic. But uh, 
as tournament director for Rogers Cup. You've seen the men and women alternating for, for years here in Toronto. Uh, last week, Roger Federer got people talking when he tweeted about how it was maybe time for both tours to merge together. Do you believe that's something that is a realistic possibility and something that would help the sport moving forward? It's been discussed for the, since the beginning of the WTA and ATP, and it has a lot of merit. Uh, everybody thinks it'll be a good idea to have the both parties combined, but there's a lot of logistical issues that have to take place for that to happen. Um, they are working closer together right now. They are sharing, you know, marketing and communications. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, the longer this goes, this pandemic is around, you know, if it's a year or 18 months or something of that nature, it might be a necessity for the parties to come together to come out of this stronger. Yeah, definitely we want to see tennis hold its, its position, and it's such an exciting time for the sport. we still got the big three on the men's side. Serena Williams is still going for that uh, elusive uh, 24th, uh, or, yeah, 24th Grand Slam. And in Canada, we've got so much young talent. Uh, does that make it even more disappointing if we don't see live tennis in Canada this year, just given how successful we've been over the past uh, 12 to 24 months? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's like, it's like we're in a twilight zone. We, this could have been the greatest year in tennis history. You know, who could have imagined the Olympics in Wimbledon would be postponed? It's just, it's unbelievable. And we were coming off, you know, our best Rogers Cup ever with Bianca winning. She'd come back and defend in Montreal. Dennis and Felix are doing so well. Milos is fit and healthy. Roger, Rafa, and Novak are trying to, to take that lead for the greatest player ever. Serena, you talked about the Olympics. It was such a great year, but you know what? If we don't have tennis this year or this summer, we'll get look forward to it next year. You're really plugged in with the pros, not just the Canadian ones. Uh, who have you been keeping in touch with throughout this hiatus? And uh, what's the vibe overall you're getting from players in terms of how they're handling uh, the break from their sport? You know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I spoke to most of the top 20 players, and their perspective is, is really good. They're, they're really supportive of the frontline workers in the various countries across the world. They're hunkered down. They're they're working on their fitness, trying to maintain a high level. Most they're practicing on private courts where they're they're staying. Uh, so they they really have a healthy perspective. As you move down the rankings, um, the the importance of making a living becomes more prevalent, and they really need to get back to play tennis to pay their daily bills. As you move out of the top hundred, etc. So. You can see the perspective changes based on ranking somewhat. Yeah, we spoke with Peter Polanski actually on this episode as well, and uh, his ranking in the, the low 100s right now, almost 200th in the world, and we were discussing the, uh, the, the, the idea by Novak Djokovic and some of the big three to potentially revenue share during this tough time, which is a novel idea. I don't know if you could get everybody on board, but Peter was definitely saying that if you're outside of the top 100, uh, it's going to be a real tough go these next few months, and you're going to get some that might not ever be able to come back to playing professional tennis because they just can't afford to. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, there's financial ramifications, not just for the players, but from the tournament side as well. You look, you know, on the ATP tour of the 60-odd tournaments and the WTA tournaments, the smaller ones on the tours are going to have a lot of hurt from this 
pandemic. So you'll see some of those events go away. A lot of challenges will go away. A lot of futures will go away. And also prize money. You know, we're going to lose a lot of corporate partners or corporate partners won't be able to step up as they did in the past. So it's, it's really going to affect the tour. We're not immune as a sport. Uh, so we'll take it in stride and we'll come out of this better and stronger and you know it'll it'll have a, a severe impact on on players though for sure absolutely uh hey in the meantime to focus on some positive things uh i did enjoy your chats with milos and genie recently that you did as part of the uh, ptr um uh social media and uh i think you also might have spoken with with felix as well can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, these social media chats you're having and uh, any others that we might be able to expect in the coming weeks? Um, well, firstly, i got to say I'm, I'm so proud to be Canadian after you speak to our players because they're just uh, ladies and gentlemen. They're just really great people, and uh, they're, just, they're just really nice people and, and, and people that we should be pr- proud of to have it in our sport and also be Canadians. But I've spoke to a, a lot of other players, and... Uh, I did it some former players, some current players, so I'll continue to do it as much as I can just to keep relations going and also just to get some information about the players and what they're up to and how they're doing in, in this current situation. Are you finding you're having to step up your social media game at all? It seems like all the pros are trying new things. I, I still don't quite understand what a TikTok is, but... Uh... Uh, we see a lot of those out there as well. How are, how are you feeling with your uh, level of comfort with uh, all these things? I think anything I do will step up my social media game because <laughs> it's not very good. But uh, no, I'm, I'm not really planning on stepping it up. I'm just doing this to to keep uh, you know our Rogers Cup listeners and tennis people engaged in the sport because it's such a great sport and we need it here in Canada. As I said, you know, we're a federation. This is going to impact what we can do for our sport in the country. So any little thing I can do to promote the sport, I will. Yeah, well, we'll take anything we can get, including, it seems, uh, virtual video game tournaments these days, too. Have you caught any of that one? Yeah, I saw that. I mean, it it seemed like it did pretty well. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I did after watching was look up online how much that game cost, because I I wouldn't mind playing it myself, I guess. But... um, yeah, a few glitches, but otherwise it's been kind of cool. The the smack talk between some of the players and uh, some of them getting in their full tennis outfits to uh, to gear up for it, and uh, some good Canadian content in there too with some of our uh, guys and girls. Yeah, it's it's great to see it. It was a great initiative by um, Madrid, you know, to come up with the the concept. So you know, but who knows? Maybe we'll try to do something in the future to, to keep our fans engaged. Right now. Um, we're not really thinking about it. We're just working on, you know, our corporate partnerships. What happens if the event goes this year? If it doesn't, what the plan is for next year? Yeah. If it doesn't happen, Carl, what is the thing that as tournament director you'll miss the most? I mean, your role is really, it's got so much variety to it in different aspects. What is it that you'd really miss out on, uh, number one, I guess, uh, if, it, if it doesn't take place? You know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's when the gates open, night sessions, when you see uh, all the people rushing in to watch the big matches, I'll miss to see, you know, can a Canadian win the tournament again and back it up like we did last year. We have a thousand volunteers. We have really close relations with them. I'll miss our staff, you know, because, you know, it's good to see the enthusiasm they have around the tournament. So there's, there's a lot of different things. And obviously, you know, just the players from all around the world. So 
it's it's an ecosystem and an all-encompassing event, so I'll miss all of it. Yeah, I think for me too, as much as I'll miss the uh, on-court tennis, it's uh, the people that make it special, and I've certainly enjoyed it over the years. I'm, uh, I, I'd definitely be missing you coming up to me on the grounds and, and making fun of any of my questions that uh, didn't come across the right way as happened once with Jeannie Bouchard, I believe. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully, you know, hopefully we can get something done this year, but, you know, in the current environment, all these events are being postponed and canceled. It looks unlikely, but let's let's hold out some hope. Yeah, for sure. Well, Carl, we wish you the best of luck with all the tough decisions that are now in front of you. But ultimately, we know that whenever the Rogers Cup is held, it's going to be a huge success as tennis fans in Canada are always ready for some top-level live uh, tennis action here in Toronto. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe, you and your family, and we look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Okay, that's Carl Hale, tournament director from the Rogers Cup filling us in on uh, the dire situation that exists here in Toronto, but one we hope uh, will come to a resolution uh, at some point soon. There you have it, Rogers Cup Tournament Director Carl Hale on uh, the status of, of, of everything and, and updating matters. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, we had another topic, Mike, that we wanted to touch on before we went and we uh, teed it up at the start. Uh, virtual tennis and a virtual tennis tournament happening, the Madrid Open. And I know you were following along with the action today. I was as well, so I don't feel so embarrassed about watching pro, <laughs> pro athletes play video games. This is what I'm most excited to talk about, so I don't know how big of a loser that makes me. Um, it's, it's just, I mean, we talked about some of the very serious matters that are going on, and this is just pure, like, unadulterated fun. Like, this is just good times. And I woke up and started watching a little bit, and after 10 minutes, I kind of had to like slap myself almost because it was a beautiful day out. And I'm like, no, this is ridiculous. Mm. I'm leaving the house now. I am not spending my morning watching some virtual online gaming tennis tournament. And so I did go out with the kids, enjoyed the weather, but came back in the afternoon. And while they were kind of taking it easy, having a nap, I put it on again and I got hooked into it. And I guess that just speaks to how desperate we are and how much I miss watching competitive tennis yep. that I got into it on on many many levels like it scratched an itch you know that exists for me right now and I'm not the only one so don't feel bad if you're out there don't feel shame if you enjoyed watching this Madrid Open virtual tournament just own it and and admit it and let's continue to enjoy it for the next few days and maybe other tournaments will latch on and do something similar uh it wasn't all perfect but that was part of the charm and part of the appeal. And, and definitely, as we discussed, some positives and, and negatives, uh, all the more fun. So, so, Ben, tell me, what worked for you? What did you like that you saw from day one of this virtual tournament? Well, uh, I'm going to give the gold medal firstly to Belinda Bencic because she had the ultimate video on Twitter of her doing her walk-in, like walk onto court for the virtual pro PS4 game. Uh, she set uh, to some music and her entering her living room with a tennis bag before she calmly sits down and, and picks up her uh, video game console and, and controller. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. So she gets the gold medal for me. Um, Agreed. <laughs> absolutely agree on that one yeah i did not expect that i did not expect other players to also be in their full gear but she just yeah wins it as you said 
for walking out as if it was a real match. Yeah, that was that was definitely awesome. Uh, the game itself looks like pretty good. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. a huge gamer myself, but I I would be happy to try this uh, virtual pro tennis game. Like it, it looked the graphics are really strong and and they cover the mannerisms of players well. Like I thought they were covering all the mannerisms of Rafael Nadal right. uh, in in his match with Denis Shapovalov. And we, we got to give credit to Denis. He was a couple points away from beating Rafa on clay. I don't care if it's virtual or real life. That That's uh, <laughs> impressive. In terms of negatives for me, um, I mean, we had a screen where you could see like the actual players like Nadal and Chapo playing, but then the commentators were chatting. I felt too much. Ugh. And I, I don't really love to criticize tennis commentators. Everybody's trying to do their best, but well, I don't even was... know if they were tennis commentators, though, you know, so <laughs> right. it's okay. We can criticize. Sorry. No, that's fine. I mean, we had someone, <laughs> we had someone pronounce Jeannie Bouchard's name. Eugene Bochard. I, I couldn't oh believe I couldn't believe that. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I felt it would have been more interesting, maybe with just like one commentator and then some like chatter back and forth between, say, Shapovalov and Nadal. That would be like terrific to watch. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely in this sort of format. And I'm okay with watching regular tennis with no commentators. By the way, I don't mind doing that, especially depending on who's commentating. But. Uh, these guys, I'm sorry, were not uh, the cream of the crop, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, calling it a, a game, the game, like the game instead of the match, and just little things like that. The one guy looked like he was sitting on his mom's bed, like with like I don't know, just like a bedroom background. It was just so awkward. It was yeah. so weird. Um, you know, at least throw up some I don't know, like tennis posters or some books or like just a blank wall in the background, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really wanting to hear that commentating, definitely wanted to pump up the volume on the players and get more chatter from them. I mean, Andy Murray was pretty hilarious with his grunting, his pseudo virtual grunting. Yeah, that was great. And, 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 uh, and other comments I enjoyed. I watched the Jeannie Bouchard, uh, Donna Vekic uh, match, which was interrupted for technical difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I watched them on Jeannie's Instagram live and that was way better because they were just kind of like, it seemed like they were just hanging out and just chatting back and forth with each other. So that was kind of cool. Um, so definitely some things I feel like they, they could tweak uh, in terms of the presentation, but I enjoyed it a heck of a lot more than I thought I would. And I agree with you that the graphics look pretty good. I think maybe you and me should pick up a copy and, I don't know what gaming. Do you have any gaming platforms at home? Like I've got a PS4 in my house. I actually don't, which is surprising. Okay. But uh, if there were any time to invest in one, I guess now would be the time. Because this this would be the only way that I could be competitive with you. Because it would okay. never happen on a real tennis court. Um, but maybe in the virtual world, you know, we could have a competitive match. But I think, and I put it out there on Twitter, and some some people replied, and apparently you can get a copy of it for like fifteen bucks, which oh, is wow. definitely reasonable. Yeah, so. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to and and see what it's like, but more enjoyable, more of a guilty pleasure than I thought it was going to be today. And um, I guess, like I said, it just speaks to how starved we are for watching tennis, for any sort of competition. Yep. And, you know, let's be honest, if you're a fan of those players, yeah, it's not the same as seeing them on the court, but you still get some sort of enjoyment out of seeing your favorite out there competing in a sense certainly and i will just point out like the one hilarious borderline controversy that everybody was chatting about uh feli lopez who is the tournament director (laughs) by the way of this virtual tournament he jumped on with the commentators for a period of time and uh he said that nadal was pulling out of his charity match uh, because of a back injury 
and everybody took it seriously. Like Reuters wrote an article about it. Nadal, <laughs> Nadal pulls out of virtual tennis match because of a back issue, uh, asked to postpone the match. And apparently Feli Lopez was just making a joke and nobody realized. Uh, so we had a couple of articles like actually written about Nadal oh, asking, so asking to push back a virtual tennis match. It's, That's so embarrassing yes. that people latch onto that and don't, there's just, you know, no due process anymore, due diligence. No. Um, my goodness. For, for me, some of the funny moments, too, that I want to mention, I almost forgot, were some of the parallels between the virtual tennis and real tennis. Like, post-match interviews were just as boring in some cases mm. and cliched as they are in real life. Like Kiki Burdens was saying when asked about her next matches, well, we'll just take it match by match and don't <laughs> want to look too far ahead. Oh, I couldn't funny. believe it, but... That and um, watching player reactions like uh, Tiafo was losing his mind when a net cord gave Fanini a match point in their match, which was pretty amusing. Yep. And I also enjoyed watching Jeannie, who was cutting up her virtual self for doing too many forehand slices, which are not really a part of her repertoire in real life. So no shortage of, of lighthearted moments, which... It's something we could all use right now for sure. Yeah, definitely. It is not the actual Madrid Open that uh, we know and love, but I will take it and uh, we'll continue watching this week. And hopefully our listeners will continue to stay with us. Uh, you have been doing so uh, during the hiatus and during the lockdown and quarantine. We, we appreciate that. And we appreciate having great content to share and great interviews to, to share throughout this time. So uh, we thank you all for uh, staying with us and still listening to Matchpoint Canada during this time. Yeah, let us know if there's anything that you want to hear or talk about. Uh, we're going to be reaching out and, and talking with you again in the future, uh, talking with other podcasters as well in the future. And, uh, hey, we should mention what you and me are doing with uh, Philip Fama, who's been on the uh, podcast with us before, which is going to be, again, a little bit different. But uh, a tennis jeopardy, which is going to pit you and I against one another, Ben. Yeah, I'm actually... Uh, very excited and very nervous for this tennis jeopardy. I don't know how you're feeling about it, uh, but it's going to be a very interesting showdown. I've done. I will admit this over the weekend. I did a no, few. No, di- you didn't. A, a few different tennis quizzes just to test my knowledge on a few things. Make sure oh, I boy. know. Make sure I know my my key Grand Slam winners and know a couple of streaks. But uh, I, I feel like if we're going older school tennis, you're going to have maybe the upper hand and maybe if we're I going, can only hope. Yeah. I can only hope that <laughs> okay. there's more way back because for me, my short-term memory is terrible. Like I'm so embarrassed that you could ask me who won the last grand slam and it would almost take me a moment to come up with it right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But my long-term memory is mm. untouched. So okay. anything from the eighties or early to late nineties. And I feel like I'm going to be very on my game. Uh, I only hope that he goes back a little bit further because there are a few years. We don't need to say how many, but there are a few years between you and I. Um, But hey, look, no matter what happens and no matter how badly I beat you by Ben, (laughs) let's just let's just continue what we're doing here on a positive and and hold no grudges. Okay. Okay. No grudges. Sure. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I agree to that. Uh, We'll be looking forward to that. We'll be sure to share the uh, YouTube video when it's out from from Philip Fama and uh, let you guys look at how we did. Hopefully it's not embarrassing. Hopefully you're impressed uh, because I'm sure some of our fans would be great at Tennis Jeopardy as well. Uh, But again, thank you so much for listening to Match point canada and we will talk to you next time
sense.